0: Hi, it's Abby Olton. Welcome to the second episode of Holding Unfolding, a podcast about facilitation. I'm not going to take too much time before we jump into the interview, but there are a couple of notes that I just wanted to give you before we jump in. So there's a point in the interview where Ryan talks about Minecraft being used for urban planning, and um, I was googling that project, and actually it's super cool. The UN had a program where they were working on redesigning like on urban planning projects, and they invited community members to um, interact with a Minecraft simulation of the plans, um, and used that as a way of um, making it accessible for community members to give input and get involved. I don't actually know where that project led or like how much community members Uh, inputs translated to design changes, but it's a cool idea and a cool use of the technology. The other cool Minecraft thing that I found related to urban planning was folks using Minecraft to test AI that were supposed to perform urban planning related tasks. And I have kind of complicated feelings about AI. We're not going to get into it here, but if you are interested in learning more about why I might be suspicious about letting AI design our cities, um, check out Safiya Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression and Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction, as well as the Algorithmic Justice League and Data Feminism and the rad documentary that I think is on Netflix right now uh, called Coded Bias. There is a point where where I will talk about risky play versus dangerous play. And um, I want to share that that framework of risks versus hazards came to our community through the playwork community. Playwork as in the folks, the adults who um, steward adventure playgrounds, junkyard playgrounds. And the basic idea is that risky things are dangers that we are aware of and practice managing and negotiating, and that hazards or dangers we're not aware of and not equipped to be managing and handling. And so, you know, if I'm rock climbing with kids, that's kind of risky, but it's great fun and good for us. But if we're rock climbing in Harriman Park, just north of New York City, like there's timber rattlers and a timber rattler hiding in the rocks is a hazard unless I, you know, have a conversation with the kids before we go and we're like, all right, what are the plants and animals that we need to be super aware of to keep ourselves safe while we're rock climbing? And then we, you know, have the whole discussion about, you know, (laughs) who else is around us um, and how to be rock climbing in a way to minimize problematic interactions with them where they get hurt, where we get hurt. And so that conversation turns the hazardous unknown into like a danger that's known and can be managed into a risk. Um, and so that's a part of facilitation. There's a part where he he mentions the starter kit, which is a document from the Agile Learning Center's network. And it's an open source document that's meant to be a uh, kind of resource guide for folks looking at starting learning centers. Most of the content is Agile Learning Centers is specific but also fairly transferable. So if you are doing self-directed education stuff and looking to start doing it in a more collaborative way, start community building in some kind of way, that resource is free and at uh, agilelearningcenters.org And I'm actually not going to put the link in the show notes. I say in the episode that I will. But the current rewrite is still in its first draft. And it still has to get polished and then translated. And um, there's some other stuff we have to do. So that'll be on the website when when it's all done. I'll definitely post an update either in whatever podcast episode aligns with it or, you know, on social media. But that's that's the resource he's referring to. And then there are some retreats at the end, he mentions. Alf Summers, uh, Emer- Emerging Leader Labs, I think is the other. Those don't really, they're not a thing right now. So you don't need more information on those other than to know not to get hung up on them. He mentions an archetypes exercise, as well as um, an exercise called Zeg. And I'm not going to put a link to either of those in the show notes. The archetypes exercise is there's a bunch of different versions. It is similar to any other schema for understanding different kind of personality types and value systems and and work styles, you know, am I someone who's going to prioritize efficiency today or am I someone who doesn't care that we're running late because we're still missing information and I need all the the pieces of information. You know, with those kind of games and frameworks, they can be really helpful for taking conflicts that come out of those differences in communication and work styles and depersonalizing them and helping us figure out how to leverage our differences in ways where we can all Best be supporting our collaboration and also talk through, you know, any any tension or conflict that does come up. Like, hey, I I know you're stressed out because we were supposed to be wrapping up in two minutes, but we're still missing this whole other chapter of information. Can we schedule? Like, I'll feel. I need us to schedule um, a time to circle back and cover that. So those frameworks can be useful. You know, they also tend. Specifically, some of the archetypes ones tend to be tied to U.S. and European white men from like the the early mid 1900s, and they reinforce the same kinds of biological uh, determinism and phrenology that you know. Frank, <laughs> to circle back to my feelings about AI a little bit, like you can't tell. Smart someone is, or whether they're gonna quote-unquote commit a crime um, based on the shape of their forehead. Even if crime wasn't a construct, it's just like I, <laughs> thats not how how humans work. We're complex systems. So while there can be you know helpful things to using some of these like personality games and frameworks, it's also really important to, to be careful and be mindful about like which ones you're using and how you're using them. And Zeg, I try to guess. (laughs) I was like, oh, maybe that's from Spain. I went and looked it up, and it is European, it is from intentional communities, but it seems like it came from a community that was in Portugal, and then that community dissolved, and Zeg's now more affiliated with a community that's in Germany. Folks in the intentional communities movement and on the internet will know more than I do about that. But the just there is that having clear communication and transparency processes and deliberate practices for community members to you know get right with each other can can be really important if you've got a community that's trying to be long term sustainable. All right, it's enough for me. Let's get into the episode. All right, sweet. Hello. Hi, Abby. I uh, want to open with an introduction. Just tell us your name, where you're at, your pronouns, Any anything.
1: Well, uh, my name's Ryan Schollenberger and I am in Brooklyn, New York, uh, currently. And the ALC that I facilitate at is, uh, is in Manhattan. Um, I use he, him pronouns.
0: And um, what do you, so you're a facilitator at the Agile Learning Center in Harlem with me. Okay. Um, <laughs> who, who are you in the world? What do you do?
1: Who am I in the world? Um, I am a facilitator and, you know, we were chatting before this and I think, I'm, I'm glad we did because I might have answered this question differently before, but it, it kind of helped me realize that even when I'm not in school, I'm still, you know, facilitating and practicing and getting better um, at at those skills. And so, you know, even when I'm not working technically, I'm often working and facilitating. So I think like maybe 80% of the time now, that's what I am. The other 20%, I'm like, you know, Probably spending time with my cat or working out so <laughs> so that's who I am at the moment
0: cool um shout out your cat parent and plant parent skills
1: <laughs> been been getting really good at those both since spending more time at home in the last year
0: I'm sure they appreciate it and are flourishing um so what are some of the processes and happenings that you facilitate?
1: Well, so in the most, you know, official capacity, I'm a facilitator at ALC, like like you said. And so that's, you know, facilitating um, with children um, at a school that, you know, obviously looks very different from a traditional school. And, and thus, I think that's why it is facilitating not teaching at ALC. Um, it's making space. It's making space for kids to To learn is making space for kids to take responsibility for their choices and to make their own decisions and to help them learn how to do that effectively. Um, And with grace. So like uh, that's that's kind of my main facilitation gig but then I also, um, you know, in the past year have gotten into some housing rights stuff uh, through my own building. Um, I have, been facilitating our tenants union, um, which is trying to get protection with the loft board in New York city, which is a really important process. Um, you know, and one that represents like actual sustainable housing in this city, which is hard to find as you know. (laughs) So, um, I've actually really enjoyed facilitating that group. And I think it's uh, given me practice at working with adults who I tend to have to work harder to work better with. So, um, yeah, that's been, that's been uh, pretty big in my life this past year. And uh, then also, you know, this isn't as much facilitating. It's probably more towards traditional coaching. But um, I have some clients that I work with in a, uh, like a training capacity. We do like fitness stuff. So, um, But my style is probably closer to facilitating than, uh, than telling what to do <laughs> for most people.
0: Yeah, um, I mostly want to ask about kids, but just real quick, because you started the tenants union, right? You have like,
1: yeah, there was a, there was a small group of, of my neighbors and I, uh, who started it. So maybe like four or five of us.
0: I'm curious about how, um, facilitating the, like inception of that, um, Has, like, how did that go and how has that, how was that work different from what you're doing now, facilitating the, like, ongoing maintenance of that body?
1: That's a good question. I think, interestingly, like, in the beginning, it was kind of like the first year of ALC in that we started with this really small core group of people that we felt, like, really great about. And we were just like, well, if this is what it is, if this is the whole tenants union, if this is the whole school, then that's great. We're just going to like do it like this. But then, you know, just like what happened with ALC, you know, more of my neighbors heard about it and they, you know, became interested. And, you know, in the beginning, a lot of the facilitation process was me meeting with people and having one-on-ones explaining what we had learned thus far, what we were trying to still learn and, you know, sort of what our goals and, out- and outcomes, uh, you know, we're gonna be. Um, so that was, and that took a lot of time. It took a lot of my time uh, in in the spring uh, and summer of, of 2020, but, um, you know, it, much like the, the work we had to do with the school and like expanding it and with enrollment, um, that allowed us to grow the group to a size that I never thought would exist. And now I think the challenge is more managing people's expectations and personalities and emotions. And, uh, I don't know if managing is the best word, but just trying to like, <laughs> you know, trying to consider, consider all those things. Um, and then knowing that allow the group to function better, to get what it wants. Um, so I guess it is managing maybe is the right word.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, a uh, cause you, Referenced the early years of the school. Do you want to talk about facilitating that kind oh, of project sure. that was a transformation, right? Cause you had other stuff to work through, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know if, if the people listening are going to know the history of ALC necessarily, but you know, it it wasn't a thing that started out of nothing like most things. Uh, it kind of grew out of another school that, um shared similar philosophical underpinnings and, you know, that there were some families from that school that still wanted uh, something similar, but, but better. And, you know, that suited what their kids needed. Uh, And that's, that's kind of how ALC started. And, you know, the question was like, how was that? Like, how was it facilitating that at that point?
0: Yeah. What, what was it like for you facilitating that, transformation process or your role in facilitating that?
1: Yeah, it, w- it really was a transformation. I mean, for myself, as much as, you know, uh, for the school itself, I mean, I, I had just been teaching in public school um, and, you know, without going into that too much, it didn't it wasn't an optimal experience for me. <laughs> I learned a lot of things, but um, as you know, and have heard many times before, it was it was just not not for me. Um, and so, you know, I had these ideas about what I like, what I thought an effective teacher was. And then, you know, later what an effective facilitator was, and a lot of the first year of the school was me actually figuring that stuff out was taking these like ideas that I had, um, of how to, for myself, like act differently, be, be less of a teacher and be more of a facilitator. And so, um, you know, I think the fact that the first year we started with six kids was very good because it was a small group. I could get to know the kids very, very well and then kind of see, all right, this group of six kids needs like this thing and they need like this much outdoor time and this many like, you know, hours of sort of more academic-y stuff a week. Um, and, it, and I think like I'm getting to a point here and, and one of the things that I started to learn how to do that maybe is more predetermined for you in traditional schools is how to budget my time and how to like effectively uh, give myself and give my time to as many kids as possible. And you know, I think part of that, and this is, I'm probably getting into another <laughs> another thing here, but it's like just knowing, okay, there may be this kid who just needs you for like one or two hours a week. You know, maybe they like they're going to be another offerings or they've got projects that they're just going to be occupied with. And they maybe just need you to take them to lunch on a Thursday or like to do this one game that three other kids wanna play on a Tuesday morning. Um, so I don't know why that's where I went but that was definitely a big thing in hindsight uh, that the first year was about. And then I, that I think was uh, something I, I learned and focused on.
0: Yeah, that's definitely one of the skills like in facilitating both for a community and with the way we do in self-directed spaces it's like okay everyone's got their different needs and if since relationship building is going to be the slowest and the most important work it's like all right what how do you build and be maintaining all these different relationships um you feel okay so you talked a little bit about how your facilitation has evolved do you have any reflections on how it's evolved in the past like two years because we're recording in pandemic times but we're recording having now been in pandemic times for a minute
1: yeah i mean you know it's hard for me to not think of that question and separate like how did my facilitation change two years ago versus a year ago? Because obviously our environment and what was required of us to be effective facilitators changed. Um, but there's like things that that are relevant across both like facilitating over Zoom and in-person. So, uh, I think more recently honestly, one of the things that I've had to learn how to do is set more effective boundaries for myself and like what, what I am, what I am like offering versus what is possible versus what is optimal for kids. So, you know, maybe sometimes that looks like me, like not doing a thing for a kid or not making something easier for them. Um, And maybe that's not even necessarily around boundaries, but it's just like, you know, there's this idea that sometimes when you struggle to do something, right? It's like you appreciate it more or you can learn a skill more quickly or more effectively. And I think being a good facilitator is balancing that, how much you let a person struggle versus how much you help them, right? Because if you just do everything for someone, it's unlikely that they're going to learn it or really care very much if they're A, letting you do it, and then B, that's happening. So. Yeah, I think I have a tendency to be a person who does things more for others. Maybe you know about this. My love language is is, uh, acts of service. And so, you know, I I think sometimes what I have to do is remind myself that there's situations where me doing more for a kid is actually doing less for them in the long run. And um yeah. That's something that I definitely didn't focus on as much in the first few years. I was a facilitator and maybe because I was getting clear on other more important stuff and things that were sort of building my foundation. And maybe now I've gotten to a point where I can uh, or where I have been able to practice that other thing. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that's a, an answer that, and I, and I think it does. I think it applies both to school on Zoom and you know, school in person. So,
0: Yeah, totally. My first example that comes to mind is like not a Zoom one. It's just like, when is carrying someone's lunchbox, like, you know, actually hindering their development? And when is it like, yes, my friend, you're very tired. And those other things are very heavy. Like, I'll carry your lunchbox.
1: Absolutely. Carrying stuff, it would have been my first example as well. It's like, and you, you know, when you're in the position that we are and, and know these kids so well, it's very clear where that line is. It's very clear where you can say, okay, you just, you don't want to do this thing. And you see me as the adult in the situation. And so I'm the person that you are trying to get to do the thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So maybe, you know, in the first or second year of the school, you'd see me walking through Central Park carrying three backpacks and like (laughs) water bottles or something like that. But no, I've gotten better. uh, I think I've gotten better at (laughs) calibrating.
0: Yeah. I have seen this. I want to ask you about park trips. um, But first, I'm wondering about um, because you facilitate the math offerings. Yes. What's your experience been facilitating math?
1: I mean, it's been pretty great personally. I it's funny, I think this is one of the stories I tell a lot of times um, when people ask me what I you know, people say, oh, you're a teacher. What do you teach? What do you you know? What do you teach at your school? And I always say math first and kind of laugh because math was always my weakest traditional subject in school. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't particularly get things the way they were taught. I don't think I was bad at math in quotation marks. I know people say that a lot, but um, I was definitely not good at it enough to like care to work really hard to get better at it. In any event, um, you know, as you know, we had a, a volunteer um, math's math's facilitator for the first what two years, maybe yeah, two years of the school and you know, after that um, parent could no longer facilitate it anymore, I just sort of thought, well, I'm going to step in and do this. And it wasn't necessarily out of necessity, but um, there were kids and or families that, you know, still wanted there to be a math offering. And so I thought, all right, I'll do this. And, you know, one of my original intentions behind that was to, you know, practice math concepts on my own when kids weren't, you know, directly requiring my help. And so, Maths kind of became this thing where we we all work through different content, usually on Khan Academy. And, you know, there's definitely like special projects, like when people are actually working on things in maths that have some other, you know, greater meaning beyond just practicing problems. Like, for example, I'll, I'll work on my fantasy baseball research a few weeks before my drafts every spring. But, you know, it's it's a place where we're all, all working through math content at our own pace and where I'm there to you know, help kids when they get stuck. And I was very clear, you know, with some of our teenagers a few years ago, like when they were getting into more advanced math, you know, calculus, trigonometry, I was like, listen, some of this stuff I haven't done. So I really, you know, I can't tell you from a place of expertise, I can, you know, I can help you, we can work through it together, but it's not going to be like a concept that I have mastery of better than you, which I think, you know, is a really interesting place to come from as a facilitator, because in most school environments, like you are meant to be the one that holds more knowledge and mastery of the skills you are teaching. Right. And that's not always how it looks at an ALC. It's not always how it looks in self-directed learning environments. So, you know, it's also, maths was a way to like humble myself and show kids that like, it's okay to not be great at everything. And you don't have to only spend times on the things that you're good at. You, You can spend time on things that you're not good at and they can be helpful. Like you know, we talk about all the time, what content do you need? And like, I think, you know, basic math skills are a thing most of us, we can agree are useful in life. And so, uh, you know, that, that's a, I think that's reason enough to like, to have that offering and to make it, you know, make it clear that you can practice something that you're maybe not naturally inclined towards. Yeah. Um,
0: one of the things I appreciate about the maths offering, and I don't hang out in the room, um, even when it's the physical room, but <laughs> um, is it is very collaborative? And I'm wondering, like beyond you know, reframing maths as something people are already practicing, right, and that's relevant to their interests, and um, being transparent about your being someone practicing this skill set are there things you do to set the space so it's like clear that the knowledge is in the room and to inspire that collaboration
1: yes um, you know as as people listening might know most agile learning centers are age mixed and kids aren't purposely separated by grade level so one of the cool things that happens at maths is there's kids of different ages and different you know sort of levels of content stuff they've That they've practiced or mastered already. And a lot of times, kids will help each other and support each other in what they're doing in maths. And, you know, as we've probably all heard many, many times, you learn something better when you teach it to others, right? Or in this case, like help facilitate it with others. And so I think that's been one of the really cool ways that maths has evolved. It's become less about, you know, me as the person holding it being the only one that can help, and kids know that they can help each other and actually kind of take pride and take joy in doing that, like that they can say, Hey, this is like a skill that I've practiced before. Let me like show you how to do this. Um, And I think it did start, it it started a couple of years ago um, when a a student sort of was like my co-facilitator in maths. And I'll be honest with you, he had a higher level of mastery in a lot of math than I did. So, you know, and you know who I'm talking about. So, I mean, I think that's when it started, but it's honestly expanded a lot in the past year since we've started doing, um, you know, maths over Zoom twice a week. And we've got, you know, normally multiple breakout rooms going. There's, you know, one or two students who like to do their own thing in a quiet room. will pop back in if they have a question. Then there's another small core group who like to, you know, be in the same room and that will help each other. So, yeah, it's, it's been really fun to see how that's evolved and especially something that's like probably traditionally thought of as something that is tedious and not fun and, you know, kind of uh, high anxiety. This is definitely a low, a low level of anxiety uh, math class, <laughs> that's for sure.
0: As it ought to be, cause math is cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do you wanna talk a little bit about um, because co- you also have co I don't know about co-facilitating Minecraft the Minecraft worlds you've done collaboratively
1: oh man that's Minecraft has been a whole thread through the years of ALC and it's been it's interesting too because Minecraft is a game that is sort of endless and its development in in our world right has been kind of endless there's updates and patches and things issued all the time and they're always adding to it and expanding it but oh man we've we started the first year of the school i think it was maybe october when i first played minecraft and i you know i played a ton of video games growing up so i could see immediately it was it was very different and it was very It was intuitive in a way that like it's really easy to pick up but then you can tell that it's expansive as well and there's so much you can learn from it and do in it i mean talking about math like uh architecture i mean the you know there's countries that are planning their cities using minecraft now because of the the one one meter square blocks being the scale and i mean there's just a lot of value in it but you know i think some of the less obvious value, and this relates to the worlds that we've built at ALC is that you can have like, you can practice community, you know, and I think of a few students over the years that have been interested in that part to the extent that some have written entire constitutions and, you know, (laughs) sort of very detailed rituals for these communities within Minecraft. But, you know, we built um, an expansive world in the first year uh, of the school we called it no cheats because we wanted it to be a very you know like strict survival server and and even that now that i think of it even like that sort of agreement making around well what is this world going to look like that we're building are we going to just like kill all the animals and harvest the crops and not replant stuff or like when we you know knock off the top two layers of the wheat are we going to replant the seeds immediately and those are some of the really cool lessons and and like some of the really cool value that I've seen come out of uh, Minecraft over the years. It's like practicing community building, which you know, of course, we're doing as well, IRL uh, in ALCS. I mean, um, so yeah, Minecraft's great. I mean, and it, you know, I think you know, at one point we stopped just hosting a local world and we had a server, and then kids from other ALCS started to join and. You know, then there was a whole new set of agreements because it was like, oh, you know, there's kids from other LCs who maybe we don't know and like maybe their perceptions of what is acceptable on a Minecraft server are different than ours. So, you know, as Minecraft is expansive, you know, the more I talk here, I'm thinking of more and more, <laughs> you know, ways that it's uh, it's been an influence for us. But yeah, I don't know. Did I answer the original question?
0: Yeah, well, because I was thinking about Co-facilitating in something super focused like math versus the way you, I've seen you co-facilitate the creation of Minecraft worlds and that kind of cultural stuff. Um, do you have any good like video game conflict navigation stories? Oh
1: man, yes. <laughs> um, all right, I can think of one that's that's pretty cool. This is this is once we. Uh, had hosted our like first world on a server so this was you know i don't know maybe five years ago i can't remember exactly when but it was you know it was it was still pretty early on but we you know there were there were multiple alcs at this point and um we had opened the server to some other people but this this particular um time that i'm thinking of it was actually a student of ours wanted to bring one of his friends on the server with him and so, we had a whitelist, which means if you want to be on the server, you have to have your account uh, name added. And so, you know, this student had texted me and said, "Hey, can I bring my friend on the server?" And I think this was actually over a, a break, and that's why they were hanging—they were hanging out together. And so I said, "Yeah, sure. Like, you know, I think it's fine with me. Let me ask the other like moderator." uh, who we had two at the time, one, one student and one was myself. Um, and you know, the other moderator was cool with it and just said, Hey, listen, let's make sure they like know the agreements that we have. Cause we'd actually come up with a list of agreements at that point. And I think they were posted on a sign somewhere in the world. There was definitely like a way you could access them. Um, but in any event he said, you know, as long as this person's willing to abide by the agreements, then I think it should be okay. So, you know, I, Texted the kid back and said, Yeah, that's fine. Like, you can come on. Here's the agreements. Just make sure that your friend is cool with all these things and, you know, is not going to, you know, break them. And he said, Sure. And so, you know, I guess they had been on server for a little bit. I remember I, I signed in maybe like an hour after um, he had asked. And I, you know, in Minecraft, you sort of spawn in somewhere, right? Either at the place. Uh, that you originally started in the world, if it's your first time coming in, or um, at the place you last were when you logged off. So I spawned in and right in front of my eyes were two, like two other players, one of them I recognized as the student who had texted me earlier, and the other one must have been his friend. And here they were like breaking, uh, breaking blocks of a structure that I can't remember what it was, but it was something someone had built, right? And one of the agreements was, don't break down other structures that players have built without asking them and this was very clearly not a mistake right this was in our like sort of main town and like everything was built out so i you know i logged off really quick and i texted the other moderator and i said hey like i think the you know the other the kid who i i let onto the server is maybe like griefing and so
0: which just real quick for our non-video game folks, griefing. I mean, or I, I can try to explain. You you play more than I do. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it's good because there's a there's a um, a difference between trolling and griefing, which I think I should make clear. Trolling is kind of um, lighthearted fun. And it doesn't do any, you know, physical damage that can't be undone in a few seconds. Um, it's not you know, it's, it's not meant to like punish someone it's, it's lighthearted. Whereas griefing is like, you're like blowing somebody's house up or burning it down or doing it with the clear intention of causing that person like harm or distress. Uh, and so, you know, griefing is like definitely on another level, uh, and, and trolling, I would say under the agreements we had was definitely like, okay. Uh, and there you know, that kind of stuff happened, but this was, you know, this was on another level because things were being broken and it wasn't something that could be easily, easily be repaired. So, you know, I don't wanna lose the, lose the original thread here because you asked me like about an example of uh, facilitating video game conflict, right? Okay, so the other moderator at the time kind of wanted to just ban, like take this kid, this guest off the white list and then either like suspend or uh, I guess like ban this other kid from the school from being on the server. And, you know, I think that like this particular student, you know, the moderator had that sort of tendency at the time that like, if someone was breaking the rules, like that was just it, like they're, (laughs) they're out, like they said they were gonna do it, they didn't. And so my, you know, I, I kind of tried to be a little, um, not softer, but, you know, to say, all right, listen, I get it. This guest who came on and like broke the agreements, like, yes, we should take them off the white list. But I think, you know, with this, with the student, we should actually like give them a chance to explain and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe like that, that will reveal something in, in context. Anyway, you know, I spent, I, I ended up, talking to this kid, the one who had asked to bring his friend on. And, you know, it was clear that they were in the same room when it happened. Like he knew what was going on and like, didn't try to stop it. And then he felt, you know, he felt really bad about it. So, um, you know, I can't even remember what the final resolution was, but I think we decided on like, a. It's like some sort of like suspension of privilege. It wasn't, it wasn't like he could, he was banned from the, uh, from the world, but it was like, maybe we had like different tiers for our moderators at that point. So there was like, you know, moderators and then other people who were kind of like sub-moderators. And I think maybe we like took that uh, ability from him temporarily and like, I don't know. I feel like I'm losing my thread a little bit here about the example. I don't know what my my lesson was supposed to be from this, but.
0: <laughs> yeah. You don't remember what the Minecraft, like restitution, reparations, all that was, but you like, I, I feel like I remember that. Cause it was also our conflict process for the school was young too. And so we were still setting the cultural norm of engaging with conflicts, like in a way that is about, cur- you know, curiosity and figuring it out. And kind of collective solution making rather than just punitive.
1: Yes. And thank you. That helps me kind of get to the, the point I was trying to make, I guess. That, you know, um, my, you know, my facilitation in that point was, or at that point was to try to focus more on what you were just saying rather than, <laughs> you know, okay, this person did something wrong. Like, what is the correct punishment? Right? Like, and I think, you know, it actually, it actually led to Uh, later, in later iterations of our servers, um, coming up with commands, this is something I didn't have the ability to do, like kids who understood Minecraft better than me did this, but commands that prevented certain blocks from being broken or, you know, um, certain sort of actions that would be considered griefing were sort of programmed out of the game. (laughs) So it was a way of, you know, creatively dealing with that. And then we could open the server to more people and not have to worry that, um you know these things that would happen you know not that hold not that we didn't have agreements anymore that holding them weren't important for maintaining like the kind of world we were trying to build but you know sometimes uh coming up with a creative solution on the front end can save you a lot of a lot of time later so
0: (laughs) yeah for sure um i'm curious if and i No, the mind like folks kind of stop like maybe there aren't video game examples but i'm thinking about how much more work it was in those early years um to have conflict processes but be more you know restoration transformation focused um here you know five years eight years down the road um have you noticed that changing and the way kids react to those situations changing?
1: Absolutely. And especially for the kids who have now, you know, been at, at an Agile Learning Center, at our Agile Learning Center for, you know, three, four, five, six years. Um, they've had time to practice that. They've learned that as a cultural norm and agreement to not view conflict as the time to figure out who was wrong and why and what their punishment's going to be, but rather to figure out like, you know, why did this conflict occur? Uh, Is this person having trouble holding agreements? Is that because the agreement is flawed? Is that because, you know, they have some sort of misunderstanding about it or resistance to it and to come up with creative solutions, Not just to like make things run more smoothly, but to support that person, the person who maybe, you know, might have been pointed out as the, you know, the culprit if we were looking at it in a, you know, more traditional sense. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think early on, one of the challenges was that even though some kids had been at a school before, you know, that was similar, (laughs) um, getting them to, make that shift took more work on the part of us as facilitators because maybe we had to drive the process a little more and we had to like maybe remind that like hey we're not being punitive here whereas now it's become a cultural norm so even when kids are newer to the school and newer to the conflict resolution resolution process there's you know we use the term culture keepers right there's this group of culture keepers who have learned how to do that pretty effectively already and then can um, communicate and facilitate the uh, conflict resol- resolution process with as much without as much uh, active input from us and we can sit back a little bit more.
0: Okay, so I asked about an academic thing you facilitate and a screens thing, um, pro screens over here. Um, you used to run rad skate park trips and currently have run and will return soon to running park trips where my, my experience of you facilitating outside is that something about how you be with the kids um, and maybe it's tied to the playing and creating you do inside too. I don't know, um, but it like gives them not just permission to try, you know, climbing a tree that's bigger than they otherwise would, but like um, plants like a seed of confidence that maybe they could trust themselves a little more than they had. So I'm wondering if you could speak to that and if there is anything you do that like a baby facilitator might wanna copy.
1: Oh man, Uh, So so many things. I like, I get hurt at work sometimes which is you know not so good for uh, our insurance but you know i've never been seriously hurt but but what i'm trying what i'm getting at there is that like i like you yeah i get in there and i get i play with the kids i jump off stuff and i hang on stuff and like you know everyone kids and adults everyone's got different physical capabilities and abilities but like the idea is just that like we're outside. Like, let's just do, let's like do some stuff. Let's run around, like throw a ball, hang from the monkey bars. And like, I try to, I try to always be doing with the kids and not just like kind of sitting there and watching. And like part of that's just because it's fun, more fun for me, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's definitely a more active facilitation style. And like also too, I think if you're in it from that mindset and it's not like, when you go out to the playground and you see a teacher there from a traditional school at recess and they're kind of like saying, these are the rules and like this is how, you know, the kids will relate to you differently as like the just the rule maker rather than like also this person who's playing and participating. It's just more co-creative. It's just in the same way that, you know, our change up process is meant to be co-creative for agreements. Um like it's easier to be a co-creator if you're playing the thing and understand it and doing it too. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know the confidence thing, I guess. I don't I'm not even really sure. I mean, maybe it's just maybe it's the same sort of like attitude that I was just talking about. Um, and like I, you know, I'm willing to like try things that maybe make me feel a little uncomfortable sometimes i don't know i don't want to say it like inspires kids to do that i don't i don't know if it does but <laughs> um that's you know that's how i how i try to like i guess model uh you know yeah talk about climbing trees i'm like i'm having flashbacks to like you know you and maybe people don't know this you don't live in new york you're not supposed to climb the trees in central park it's like technically against the rules, but that's a rule I really don't like. So that's uh, I'll I'll just say this right now. It's one of those one of those times I'm willing to bend, uh, <laughs> you know, bend the official rules to get kids something they need because there's nothing like climbing a good tree. You know, you really feel alive up there. So I'm always I'm always game for kids trying that if they uh, if they want to.
0: Yeah, definitely here for relationship building with trees. Oh yeah. And I know when they're in the trees or when they're on top of that structure at the close park, here. Like sometimes other adults see them and get nervous. And you know, we've all got our lines we use to like advocate when they go to be like, get down. You know, Uh, mine's usually like, oh no, like I trust she knows her body. (laughs) Like
1: that's right, and and those are and those are important moments as a facilitator because you're going to be out in the world with kids and there's going to be people who are like offended by what you're doing or aghast at what you're doing or don't understand what you're doing. And it's an important moment there where you, you know, most of the time you, you need to be like a little bit defensive, uh, uh, you know, of the, of your student, of your, of your kid there. And, and I don't mean like maybe defensive is not the right word, but you need to definitely, you know, Communi- be able to communicate to these other adults that like, no, like this person knows their boundaries. I trust their boundaries. If I thought they were doing something unsafe, I would not be letting them do that right now. <laughs> so, you know, and most of these examples, you know, when I say people are aghast, it's like, you know, a kid's hanging from the pole on the subway or something. And it's like actually not a big deal at all. And I think if most people like had a moment later to think about that, that you know, about those moments, it would be like, that really wasn't a big deal, but you know, we have like, there's, there's societal like expectations and norms of children, just like there are for adults. And sometimes we step outside of those a little bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, are how, are there moments where you're nervous? And what do you do in the moments where you realize you're feeling nervous?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because, you know, I tend to, I tend to trust my instincts pretty, uh, pretty deeply, but there are times that, you know, having said that there are times where I feel nervous and the reality is that it's probably okay. Right. So there's those moments where I need to check myself and say, okay, this is making me a little nervous, but like, I do actually trust this person. Like maybe it's a teenager. I'm like, okay, I know they know their body well enough that they're not going to like, you know, do this thing. So, there are those moments, but then, you know, if there's moments where I I really do feel like that, you know, something has shifted from risky play to unsafe play, like I will, you know, my, the first thing I'll say to a kid is, Hey, listen, that, that makes me feel really nervous. Like, I think that's a bad idea. Here's why I think you might get hurt doing this, or here's why I think like you might break, you know, this thing doing this. And I try to just explain it. And, you know, I rely on the fact that most kids, that are going to an ALC respect me and know me enough to know that if I'm saying I feel nervous about this thing and they shouldn't do it, that's probably a bad idea. Um, you know, that's not going to work 100 percent of the time, but I have a good enough relationship with most of the you know most of the kids that they will probably take my advice there. But you know, that's I mentioned a second ago risky play and the difference between risky play. And, you know, um, dangerous play or like, you know, injurious play and like you have to that's a skill that as a facilitator is not something that most people have uh, naturally, you know, and you have to practice that and like, like I said, a part of that, a big part of that is checking yourself and saying like, am I just nervous about this because of some thing that happened to me in the past or that like, maybe that is just a trigger for me. Um, and really it's okay? Or like, is this actually dangerous? And do I need to like step in and, and like stop this?
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I probably have those moments more than you do. But um, I, for me it's gotten, and, and some of the other things that change in how we relate to situations, like it's got, I'm way less tired than I was like in the first year. Do you feel like it gets easier or?
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, it should never get so easy that you feel like you don't have to do anything anymore or that you've like figured it all out, which is like, you know, it's probably goes without saying for most people listening to this, but you know, if you ever feel that way, something's probably wrong, but it does get easier. And like anything else, the more hours, the more, years you practice a thing ostensibly you're going to get better at it especially if you want to and so yeah it does and now you know we can just get tired in different ways (laughs) tired tired from looking at screens too long or you know tired from having seven meetings uh, with people but yeah I mean I think at the end of the day like it does get easier. And if you're doing this work and it's something that you wanna be doing, um, it's gonna energize you more than make you tired. And I think if you know you feel tired because you ran around at the park with kids, then that's a good kind of tired to be.
0: Um, do you, did, did your relationship to um, play and like to learning Um, was it always as interdisciplinary and trustful and expansive as it is now? You mentioned being a regular school teacher, and that's the thing I know about you.
1: Mm -hmm. I think I always had that tendency, honestly. I don't think that I knew how to effectively take that tendency in myself and translate it to being a good facilitator, or even to being a facilitator. Cause you know, I didn't, you know, get into education right away after uh, college, but um, yeah, I mean, no, definitely not. It hasn't. I think I've always had, you know, a tendency to be a little bit more interdisciplinary and, uh, you know, outside the box or, or just like wanting to focus more on like making sure kids had like time and freedom to do things and, and like choice. And I mean, a lot of it's been like about responsibility for me too, even before agile learning centers. And like, before I had any kind of concept of like how I would be a facilitator in a self-directed learning environment, I was kind of like, you know, giving kids the, the freedom to have responsibility to make their own choices. It just doesn't work well in traditional schools. So like, you know, I went to grad school for context uh, for everyone to, be, you know, to become a teacher in a traditional school. I got a master's of education and you learn, you know, certain buzzwords that are sort of like borderline self-directed and are trying to like bring some of those concepts into the classroom. They call it student-centered learning. is a big one that you that you hear, but it's kind of like lip service, really. If I'm being honest about what those what those things are, it's not like actually really doing the thing. But in any event, I you know when I was teaching in public schools, I was trying to do self-directed learning as 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 best I could. I was trying to co-create agreements for the classroom with kids, and you know it, it creates problems at a certain point, and I don't mean just problems with like the kids being able to do it. I mean, with things you come up against, you know, there's, there's content that you have to teach and there's standards that have to be met. And it just doesn't leave a lot of time for the other stuff that I feel is actually really important. And it certainly doesn't leave much time for community building um, amongst kids, which is a big drawback, I think, of most schools. But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. So, you know, no, I wasn't always like this. I think again, it was my tendency. And I think that as soon as I started working in a self-directed learning environment, a place where, you know, there was limitless time for kids to choose what they wanted to do, uh, it sort of unlocked my potential, I think, as a facilitator. And I started to like, my concept of like, what was valid to be doing in school shifted even more, uh,
0: Can I ask for um, some specifics? I, and I share this um, as you know, but what I'm hearing is like, you were in regular school and we're like, oh, this says it's kids practicing what they're gonna need. And it's not that for them. And it's not that for staff. And then jump to self-directed education what were the specific things that you were looking for and that you valued?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. first, I think first and foremost, it's, it was just like kids having the ability to make choices, to choose how they wanted to spend their time and beyond how they wanted to spend their time and what they wanted to do, how they wanted their community and their school to actually look and work and, you know, different kids have different levels of interest in that. Some just want to be left alone to do their own thing, right, on, on the spectrum, right? Some kids just want to be left alone to do their own thing. And some are really process-oriented and community-oriented and really want to actively work on, on building that stuff. But just having the time and space for them to do that and to make the choices about where they want to fall on that spectrum, that was that's kind of the biggest thing. Um because without that, it's hard to do all the other stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, one of the other things that's like pretty easy, and I think is something that most facilitators are going to have to reckon with if they've had a more traditional uh, education uh, themselves, is to sort of remove their judgment a little bit from like what's a valid use of time, right? Like, you hear, we, we hear it from parents all the time, you know, sometimes it's like, all right, you just played that video game for two hours. Um, am I going to like think that wasn't valid because it was a video game? Well, as you and I know, there's tons of research that support the fact that video games are actually a really valid use of time and are, in fact, educational. So, you know. Uh, I mean, but there, but there's going to be things, right. Whether it's video games, whether it's whatever that you are just going to like personally be like, well, I wouldn't do that. And maybe even like, well, there's like six better things you could be doing. You got to be able to, you got to be able to release that a little bit. And again, it's like, if we're effectively doing our jobs, if there's patterns of behavior in a kid that is unhealthy or that you know, is very clearly not serving what they are saying they want to do, then, you know, that's, that's our job as facilitators then to step in and do something at that point. But there's a big difference between an unhealthy pattern of behavior and things that are just not what we would choose to do or that we think are optimal. So... Yeah. Sorry.
0: No, you're good. And I think it, um, especially for new SDE facilitators, it bears mentioning that like, when we step in, usually that stepping in looks like, you know, checking what we're assuming about what's going on and projecting and being like, hey, you know, what you doing? Like, what's fun about it? Like what, you know? Um, And then collaborating, like if there is, you know, something going on, or it's like, oh, they're running away from a situation or, num- you know, there's something that needs addressing underneath. It's like, again, a curiosity based and a care based interaction rather than a like, I said, get off the computer because I'm tired of <laughs> seeing you there.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: Are there um favorite tools or practices that you have for, you know, keeping yourself on top of your game as a facilitator or for making sure you stay growing and learning?
1: Top tools. Hmm. I mean, you know me, I love a good game shifting board. And, you know, I say that we've, we've, uh, we've been using it less in recent times, especially since we've been online. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's time to like give game shifting an upgrade. But I do love a good game shifting board. And for you know people who don't don't know that term out of context, it's uh, it's a really effective tool for making visible certain things that are invisible and that we just sort of make assumptions about. You know, uh, for example, you're in a meeting and um, you know someone's giving a presentation and you have a question, what do you do? You raise your hand, right? I mean, that's like a cultural norm for a thing we do, but maybe it actually makes more sense in a given meeting to have someone just jump in when they have a question. Um, or maybe you know you require feedback where you need to take turns in a circle responding where everyone just says something once. A game-shifting board takes these you know possibilities, ways of structuring how we're talking, what we're talking about, start time, end time, um, you know, monitoring people's, like, attention span and capacity, and it it makes it all visible. Um, You know, it's usually a whiteboard or, you know, a a chalkboard or something with um, magnets that you can manipulate to indicate these different settings, but it's a really useful tool for that. And, you know, also just maybe for uh, people who are not as good at picking up, like, auditory cues and social sort of norms and like the way that a meeting's operating it literally makes it visible um and i know this because i've been <laughs> i've been reading over the the new starter kit uh edit you can i know you can find a section on game shifting boards there but also um you know i'm thinking about this because of the uh the more visual aspect it uh, aspect of it i know for you know uh vision impaired folks that there's versions now uh, been done in braille, right?
0: Yeah, um, the because the point of the game shifting board is to take, as you said, those implicit kind of social structures and make them explicit so you don't have to worry about them and so you can manipulate them more easily. And in s- some ALCs, I'm trying to think, I don't remember if it if they used Braille or if it was that they came up with kind of soft auditory cues. Um, but in settings where having the visual board is hard. and we've, we've done adaptations when we've got preliterate folks in the room or folks who aren't as comfortable in English with some of the more, you know jargony words, um, you adapt the tool. Um, I'm looking for examples for the starter kit, which I will put in a link to in the meeting notes once this is a thing that has meeting notes. <laughs> uh, but, um, are there other, I'm asking about tools. Cause I know you like tools.
1: No, um, I <laughs> Like if you would like
0: to gush about tools. Well,
1: and, you know, you said tools that keep me on top of my game as a facilitator. Um, I mean, that one, you know, is one that's like I'm actively using with kids. and I like actively using with kids. I mean, um, you know, I'm a big organization guy. And so Kanban, some form of Kanban and or Trello, uh, you know, is is a big tool for me. I mean, I've got multiple boards in my home. I've got my Trello board, which I interact with. I used to say daily. Now it's like hourly. Um, And that's not... I think if I wasn't a facilitator, I would still really love a tool like that. and would really help me just because of my brain. So if you're, you know, if you're an organizational uh, brained person, yeah. Kanban and Trello big, big tools I would, uh, you know, promote. And for those of you who don't know what they are, it's just, it's a, uh, it's a workflow tool. Um, again, you can find information about it in the starter kit, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it's a workflow tool. It's for making your process visible it's, you know, I've heard it called the to-do list 2.0. Um, essentially, you're working with uh, columns. It can be something simple like, you know, ready, uh, doing, done, backlog, ready, doing, done. You write cards, you know, using a post-it or uh, with Trello, you do it, you know, online and, uh, you, you know, you type into the cards and then you move them across the, uh, across the swim lanes and, um I don't know. I mean as far as uh tools that make me both a better facilitator and a more organized person, I don't think any are better than than a good kanban board.
0: <laughs> um let's see what else? Are there so that that's like a meeting facilitation tool and a like workflow task tool. Do you have any practices like I have a ritual around my morning coffee, and like I meditate um, outside of my facilitation hours, so that I can show up in those facilitation oh, hours like oh. present. Do you do yeah. have any of those kind of practices?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's usually lifting heavy things and putting them back down, uh, <laughs> or otherwise moving my body. No, it's it's. I'm kind of joking, but really not though. I mean, this you know, I think I'm glad you framed it that way, Abby, because showing up as your optimal self, like that's the way you gotta facilitate. You, you gotta show up every day and try to be as close to your optimal self as possible. And obviously we're human and there's gonna be, we all have tough days, but uh, you know, for me, if I'm physically active, if I can work out um, and, and then also share that with other people, as I mentioned earlier, um, that allows me to show up and feel calm, to feel centered, um, to feel energized, you know, I'm the type of person that if I'm not moving around in a given week, I feel more cranky, I feel you know, like I have less energy and I have you know, I've less patience. So it's uh it's just something I've learned over the years. If I'm able to do that, you know, three, four times a week, I'm just just a nicer person to be around and quite frankly a more effective facilitator. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, I mean <laughs> know, know yourself. Right. Um Great. I don't want to take too much more of your time. Are there experiences you've had of being facilitated or other facilitators you've um, learned things from that you would want to pass on?
1: Oh, man. Definitely. I mean, I... One of the things that that I kind of miss about the earlier days of Azure Learning Centers are our ALF summers. And I mean, it's not that they don't happen anymore. It was just, you know, in the beginning, it was all of us that were doing the thing in one place. And I mean, it was really fun. Um, And so, yeah, I was definitely facilitated a lot in those those scenarios. Um, And then, you know, the sort of the proto ALF summer was uh, Emerging Leader Labs. And that was, you know, I was definitely facilitated a lot there. Um, I think you asked, what would I want to pass on, uh, as like, a, oh man, a couple come to mind. I mean, you know, I love the archetypes game, uh, which, you know, not perfect. Kind of like astrology. It's just a fun game for knowing yourself and the people you work with. So that one I would pass on. I don't know if there's any kind of like link or something we can put up to that, but, um, and oh, you know what? What one actually just came to mind? This was from actually from an Elf Summer, maybe three or four years ago. Um, and I'm, the name of it is going to escape me, Abby. But we did the we did the circle, where there was a sort of like inner circle of people, of women in this case, giving uh, like telling a story or. You know essentially the ones doing the talking in the outer circle where people just listening what's do you remember the name of this haney uh facilitated it
0: we've done a number of circle games the one that haney the facili- who's a facilitator and founder at zigzag brought from an intentional community i think in spain i believe they call it zag and one person Um, steps in the middle and expresses what they're what's present for them and then other people step in and reflect back to them what they heard. And if I'm remembering correctly, that process came out of an awareness that if people are carrying stuff that that's not witnessed by the group, then that's part of how like resentments and assumptions can fester and that when you're trying to be an intentional community kind Of having space to shine light on that stuff is really proactively, um, can be really powerful.
1: Yes, it was egg form, that's what I was thinking of, and that's kind of an old one. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know why that came to mind, but it was, it was really, I remember that being really powerful, and um, you know, and that was also definitely a moment where I was being facilitated, and I highly recommend being facilitated if you are a facilitator, <laughs> you know. In the same way that I was saying earlier, if you ever feel like you have it all figured out and like uh, it's just easy, then you should start worrying. (laughs) You should always be trying to up your game.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that's the example you mentioned, because I remember also being very struck by Haney's facilitation, like witnessing and not being sure sometimes how he was choosing when to kind of interrupt and when to give a flow more space Um, I'm being super curious about that. Um, Are there other teachers, facilitators? And it, you know, it could be like, I took this workout class with this someone and they (laughs) used really, they did this thing and it was cool.
1: I just keep thinking of Margaret Kiljoy right now because when you said, said, uh, Yeah,
0: shout out Margaret. I'm,
1: I'm just thinking of that trainer that she had on. And that was just like, it was like everything that they said was so simple yet it was like exactly what I think a lot of, uh, people who are trying to get into fitness or even, you know, looking at it from my side, people who like do fitness as a profession or a side hustle should think about. Um, I mean, this is pretty specific what I'm about to reference, but it's like, you know, the idea that the best exercise for you is the, the one that you'll do consistent consistently, you know? And that was like one of these concepts that I was like, yes, like, this is what it is. Like if I work with, you know, uh, a client or if I'm working with like a group fitness class, like, why am I going to like give them something that feels like punishment or if they're relating to like, oh, this is like so hard. And I'm like struggling against this thing. No, do the fun thing. You're going to stay with that longer or do the thing that like, maybe it is like frustrating and challenging, but it's like you're excited by that challenge. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why my mind went to that, but.
0: (laughs) No, I mean, that's a great example. And I uh, need to shout out Margaret also, cause um, that podcast, Live Like the World is Dying, I'm pretty sure is part of why I was like, maybe I'll start a podcast. So.
1: It certainly was inspiring for me. I mean, she's got some really cool stuff going on.
0: Yeah, I'm a little uh, um, self-conscious because I don't have an auditory ear. And I'm like, oh gosh, a bunch of the people who do podcasts I like also have bands. I bet they hear that my mic quality is just, you know, the shitty mic on my laptop. But uh, it's fine. It's good enough. It's do the thing that you'll do, right? (laughs)
1: That's right. You know, there's always time to get a better mic. The content that really matters Um,
0: (laughs) I'm gonna put that on the internet later and it's gonna make me uncomfortable in all all the best ways. Um, Great, do you, anything I didn't ask about and should have?
1: Well, I'm in the business of trusting you uh, generally. So I'm gonna say no and that uh, this has been really fun. And uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for asking me such great thought-provoking question.
0: Yeah, gladly. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's been a delight to facilitate alongside you for the past eight years and to co-direct and now co-admin, which I didn't ask about, but you know, maybe once I get a better mic, we'll do a part two. <laughs> That sounds good. I'd be happy to.